This is the San Diego Screenwriter Studio, the only podcast dedicated to the beginning screenwriter. Today, we have the one and only Jim Hart joining us on the show. He wrote the 1991 fantasy adventure Hook, directed by Steven Spielberg. He also gave life to the movie Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Jim Hart is coming up, but first we want to welcome back our co-host, Raul Sandlin. Welcome back, buddy. How was Nicaragua? It was fantastic. Yeah, I've been going to Nicaragua for about 35 years. Well, your wife. Yes, my wife is Nicaraguan. I've got a lot of family there. I worked in Nicaragua during the 80s. So yeah, that's it's a long history. So I went there with, you know, sort of a... Uh, a long backstory and a lot of sort of deep-seated knowledge of the country. I wasn't just a tourist on a bus snapping photos. Sure. But today you're going to talk about a movie that deals with the revolution in Nicaragua, right? It's an oldie but a goodie, right? It's 1983, Mm -hmm. so 40 years old. The movie's called Under Fire, Mm -hmm. and uh, just to make some Hollywood connections, it stars Gene Hackman, Nick Nolte, And the third player, Joanna Cassidy. Cassidy. Yep. Um, and those are the three happy travelers, three journalists who go down to Nicaragua during the Civil War. It does portray what the United States was actually doing down there during the Revolution, right? Yeah, it's, it's historically accurate. Yeah. The names have been changed. And for insiders in Nicaragua, there's some little moments like they change the name of the leader. There's some fictionalized stuff. But if you're looking for a good sort of beginner's feel for what was happening in Latin America in the late 70s through the 80s, Under Fire is a great movie to start with. Right. And you were down there during that time. So you kind of know what's up. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have more on that coming up, but we are going to get into our interview with our special guest, veteran screenwriter Jim Hart, and his fascinating story of making it in Hollywood. What a story. you got to hear this. It's just incredible. This guy I can't to- wait. This guy toiled for decades as a screenwriter. He actually got made good money, but man, did he pay his dues. And then he just struck gold. Hey, you are listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio on KNSJ, San Diego's only social justice network. We'll be right back. I want to welcome Jim Hart. Jim, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I heard your talk this morning. And you went a long time before really gaining what we call success in Hollywood. Yes, I was. I was what uh, Barbara Morgan refers to as a twenty-year overnight success. Uh, <laughs> I went from being a um, journeyman sort of development screenwriter, where you set up a development deal at a studio, uh, you write a script, uh, you'd get paid, um, you'd have a pension and and health care, and no movie would get made. And this went on for for, for about, about twenty years. So you'd sell the script. Sell the script. Our our Work with a director, or a producer would come to you with an idea, or actors. I wrote for I wrote for specific actors. Uh, I was very fortunate because uh, I made a very good living. We lived in New York. I put the kids through private school, but no movies were made. And my son Jake would come home and say, "Hey, I tell everybody you're a screenwriter. They want to know what movies have you made." And I would go, "Well, you know, one that we don't talk about very much." Uh, and I went and showed him my office, you know, the closet full of unproduced scripts. 
they were all there. Those are my movies that, you know, are not made. So it wasn't until I was 42. I'd been at this for a while. And two things, these two things that I was burning to do, one was Hook. That came from my family, from my then six-year-old son who asked the question, what if Peter Pan grew up? Uh, and I stole his idea and put him through college. The other was Dracula, which had been a passion of mine and since the 70s. It took me 15 years to get Dracula made. Nobody wanted to do Dracula. Nobody wanted to do Hook. Hook was passed on by every studio. Um, Dracula was passed on by every studio. Uh, Dracula's been made, and who wants to see a grown-up Peter Pan? It was always those kinds of things. So when I finally got to write Hook and write Dracula, they were very low, off the radar, when Dracula was going to be for the U.S. cable network, TV movie. Hook was a lowball um, development deal at TriStar with Nick Castle, who was a, a wonderful director. We, very, we were very small, and, and nobody paid attention to us. So I turned Hook in. Uh, a few weeks later, I turned Dracula in. And, you know, crickets, silence. Uh, I did hear that Dracula was really good, but they couldn't make it for a TV budget. Uh, and I understood that. Uh, Hook uh, sort of sat on the shelf because the studio changed heads, and you always expect... When the studio changes mm -hmm. heads, everything gets trouble flushed, mm -hmm. and and I'm we're broke, you know. I mean, it's I'm I had to borrow money to write Hook, but they were the two projects that I had that came out of my experience with my brother before he passed away. Was mm -hmm. stop talking about all the things you're going to do someday and do them because mm -hmm. you don't have as much time as you think. So Hook and Dracula became these passion projects. During when the writing of Hook and Dracula, my agents called me and said, "We're letting you go." You're, you're over 40, you haven't been produced, nobody's going to do Hook, nobody's going to do Dracula. You have to find another representation. And I couldn't. No, no agent wanted to hire me. They didn't want to sign me. Uh, my lawyers were kind of shocked. You know, I think it was, this was spring break, April, May. We went out west to Wyoming to stay with the friends of ours who had loaned us money. I'd figure out how I can't pay you back. We were at a, a burger joint in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I went downstairs to the phone booth because we didn't have iPhones and Samsung phones and <laughs> smartphones in those days. Uh, my entry machine was a message from my agent saying, please call me as soon as possible. So I went, I'm either in more trouble or, you know, maybe he's got something good to tell me. So uh, I made the credit card call, hoping the credit card would go through. And I called CAA and asked for my agent, John Levin. And usually it's always, he's in a meeting, he's on another call. Mm -hmm. He's in a conference. You're busy. He's in a meeting. We'll mm -hmm. get back to you. John got right on the phone. And he said, where are you? I said, I'm in Wyoming. You know, he said, okay, just listen to me. A very important director wants to direct Hook. And I thought about it. And I said, we already have a director. And John said it again. A very important director wants to direct Hook. And I said, if it's not Steven Spielberg, we don't have anything to talk about. And John said, that's who it is. As I said this morning, I don't remember the rest of the conversation. <laughs> I just was like, <laughs> and it's interesting because my wife had always known if Stephen found out about Hook, he would do it. Mm. That, that it would, he would drop everything to do it. So I go back upstairs and, and Jake and Julia, our son and daughter, and Judy are all there at the table. Like, any news? And I'd sit down very calmly and said, yeah, Steven Spielberg's going to direct Hook. And of course, everybody just like face plant into your food and and in that one phone call my entire career changed six weeks later i got the same phone call from john levin 
that, oh, by the way, Winona Ryder loved the script and took it to Francis Coppola, and Francis Coppola wants to direct Dracula. So I went from being having no agent, no representation, unproduced, uh, over 40, uh, nobody in town wanted to represent me, to Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola directing two scripts that nobody in Hollywood wanted to do. How did that change your life? Well, it gave it one. It I got to pay my bills <laughs> and uh, pay back some people who loaned you two, money. Two, yeah, pay, we did that, and two, it gave us access suddenly to a whole level of the business that that John Levin had been struggling to get me into. Mm-hmm. I could now take meetings. People would now submit me projects, or 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 we could try. We could take something else out that we liked that might get a different. Uh, look and all those agents that passed on me they all called me and said oh it, was, it wasn't me it was my partner you know he didn't uh, and it just lets you know that they they want you when they can when they when you're valuable and they can use you and make money off of you john levin stuck in there and, and held in there with me through that bleak period he never stopped representing me even though the agency let me go and suddenly the agency had to go oh well my goodness uh we've got coppola and Spielberg, and, and we have these big projects, so, uh, you know. And I probably didn't handle it as well as I should. I probably made him eat crow a little bit, mm-hmm. but not for John and, and a couple other people in the agency. And it did change our lives. And it was humbling, and it was also inspiring. I remember John Levin and I went on the set of Hook when the pirate ship was being built and stood there, and John said, you know, this, this is happening because you wrote a script. And it was the thing that I learned from Frank Pearson my mentor, who reminded me that nobody in this town has a job until you type the end. And it was the first time I was beginning to see the job creator theme that I promote now, that writers are job creators. All of those carpenters building that ship, all of the costume designers, the great special effects people, the, the combat, the sword, the, the combat with the pirates, the, the, the special effects with uh, the, 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 the sets and Tinkerbell, it, because a writer wrote a script. Mm-hmm. And also because a kid, a six-year-old kid, had an idea. Right. What if Peter Pan grew up? I want to talk about the strike just a little bit because in my former career, I was a lobbyist up in Sacramento. So I know, know a little bit about advocating, and you are advocating currently in Washington, D.C., regarding the AI issue that the WGA and AFTRA SAG are striking on. And it's one of the big issues on that table. So can you kind of share with our audience here about how important uh, and what's at stake here, not only for the strike, but for, for everybody. It's, yeah, it's, it, it, the AI is not just permeating entertainment business and technology, it's permeating everything. Um, uh, I, I went to Washington, D.C. with a group on piracy legislation, and um, anti-piracy legislation and AI. Uh, and the strike that we're involved in now is, is the, the conventional wisdom sort of looking at us, oh, it's all those writers wanting more money. They just want more money. They live in Beverly Hills. They drive big cars. That's just not true. 30% don't qualify, make enough money for health care. That's $42,000 a year. The, the, the shows that are costing so much money doesn't mean that money's going in a writer's pocket. And now AI shows up. And AI is not going to go away. It's here. And, and we're not going to be able to, to carve it out of any uh, settlement that we make with the studios. They're going to use it. Writers are already using it. So the, the goal is to define the use of AI and, the, and keep the language in the agreements with the studios where a writer is defined as a human being. 
That's in the documentation, and it's never been asked to be changed. So the goal is to find a way to use AI, but also not have it dilute or undermine what a writer gets paid, the royalties that we get paid for, for reuse and multiple showings. It can, you can use AI, but it can't be used to replace a human. It can, re, it can be used to enhance or, or rewrite or revise a writer's work. And the same thing for me. I would go, I would go in and rewrite something that uh, an AI wrote, but they're not getting credit. Right. And I think that's the big issue is that let the studios use AI. They're going to use it. But they can't, it can't diffuse or dilute what, the, what our contribution is as professional writers. The other thing is, too, is what streaming and what they're doing right now we used to get royalties. You used to be able to go and look at your cable guide on, on cable, you know? Yes. And you would see when your show was going to play or when your movie was going to play. And you got paid a royalty, a residual, according to the, the international and, na and national domestic use of your material. Now they're saying, with streaming, it's 24-7. And they're saying, we can't keep track of how many views, which is nonsense. They keep track. They, they decide when they're going to renew a series and when they're not going to renew a series. So the other issue is... The, Protecting those residuals and those royalties protects a way of life that we have created as writers. You started as an assistant. You moved into be a writing assistant. You moved into a writer's room and maybe got to write an episode. Then you moved up to a head writer or, or maybe show even showrunner mm -hmm. and then the EP. Mm -hmm. um, and by the time you got there, you had had a body of experience where you understood the business of being a writer and what a writer's contribution is to the ultimate finished product. You're not just someone who gets locked in a room and cranks out pages and they say, thank you very much, goodbye. That's what's happening now. Most writers now are paid off and gone before they even start shooting. The mini rooms is another thing that's a real yeah. big issue, right? Yeah, the mini room is what I'm talking about, where you hire two or three writers, they, they knock out uh, all the episodes, and they're let go. And then you leave one writer, the, the showrunner, who ends up working for practically scale, to, to revise and retouch. He's and re doing everything, or everything. she's doing everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. one writer. Uh, uh, during production. Uh, and that's not the way it used to be. To not have writers around during production is a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. Things change every day. Lines change. Something happens with the character. Wait a minute, we got we to we add this or let's follow that line or we got to go rewrite this episode because of what just happened here with the audience wants to see more of that character. The, the writer has the most knowledge and it has the, is the wellspring of information more than any other piece of a production or a storytelling or a television series or a film. And for them to be sidelined and discarded is just ridiculous. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriters Studio in interview with veteran screenwriter Jim Hart. He was a recent guest speaker at the Ghost Ranch Writers Retreat, sponsored by the Austin Film Festival. Incredible experience for me as a screenwriter. My interview with Jim continues as we dive deeper into the WGA SAG after strike and one of the biggest issues, AI. Jim is a WGA East strike captain who's also been working in D.C. to get some federal guidelines on this controversial issue as it relates to screenwriting. When do you think the strike might end? When do you think the, they'll come to the table, the studios will come to their senses, really? Well, there have been some statements made by members of the companies that they're going to break us. They that want you, us to I've lose our mortgages. Yeah. They want us to lose our homes. They want us to go bankrupt. Starve us out. So that then we'll come back to the table and take anything. We're also hearing March a lot, uh, which is terrifying. That's, a, that's the longest strike we've ever been in. The longest strike I've ever been in was five months. Mm -hmm. This is my fifth strike. I've been through a bunch of them. 
And I understand now that money is being spent in certain states and in pre-production to build sets, to um, get permissions, to design sets, and what have you, all below the line stuff, in preparation for shooting a series in March. And, and that sort of dovetails into what we're hearing that they want us to, they want to wait until after the first year before they do anything and see what, what they can squeeze out of us. That's scary. And that's also brutal and, and not at all, the, I mean, an environment that's conducive to cooperation and creativity. It, it creates acrimony, it creates anger, uh, it, it costs people their jobs. We're costing people jobs because we've shut down productions. I don't like that, you know? And they're pointing the finger saying, see what the writers have done to you? You're losing your job. The Teamsters would not cross our picket lines. They got out of their trucks and they said, we're honoring your picket line, and they marched with us. Mm -hmm. And that meant they were losing their job for that day. And that's how important this strike is. So. I hope that something happens in October. I don't know if it will. I think it's going to be the first of the year before there's any. And, 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 and as my manager, John Levin, said to me today on the phone, they have to start talking to each other. The companies are, are, being, are being foolish, and we're being foolish. And to say that there is an open invitation to come back and negotiate is not enough. Somebody has to hold up her hand and say, this is ridiculous. Here's a proposal. You know, Here's a place to start. And I don't know if the companies have suffered enough where they're ready to do that. Well, Disney, the haunted house kind of was a, dis a very disappointing opening. But they, they, the, that and the Peter Pan they did sort of got rele you know, relegated to streaming. Uh, a lot of the films are not doing what, uh, what they should. Indiana Jones was a, a disappointment. Um, you know, the audience is changing and the, the studios and the companies have to wise up too. Mm -hmm. At the San Diego Screenwriter Studio, this is a podcast for the beginning screenwriter. And this Hollywood is in such turmoil right now. It's hard to kind of judge, you know, is there a future in this? What's your best advice for somebody yeah. starting out? Three years ago, or even two years ago, I would have said, this is a golden opportunity to be a new writer because there's so many buyers uh, and they're looking, for, they're looking for new voices. They don't want to deal with me anymore. They're tired of dealing with me. <laughs> More from Jim Hart coming up regarding tips for beginning screenwriters. He's got the information for you. You don't want to miss it. When this is over, I think it'll be like it was two or three years ago. It'll be, it'll be enormous opportunities because there's so many buyers. Um, and also international and indie. The indie world is going gonna, is gonna to perk up because we're making waivers for indie films. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you keep writing those spec scripts. Uh, there, there will be managers and oh, oh, platforms. Get your scripts on blacklist. My daughter had her first film posted, produced because she wrote posted on blacklist. Um, same thing with uh, Inkwell. Submit your screenplays to high high end um, organizations and festivals. The Austin Film Festival is still the best festival for independent screenwriters to submit their material and be recognized by major producers uh, with, with monetary rewards. We give them a reward every year, $2,500 from the WGA. Uh, same thing with the ISA, the International Screenwriters Association. Go join them. They are, they are the best nurturing organization I've seen <clears throat> outside of the EFF uh, for uh, burgeoning threshold screenwriters. Screencraft. Uh, they're both high-end organizations which have thousands of members and they were started by screenwriters who couldn't get jobs, <laughs> who have now produced these platforms that are helping screenwriters all over the world. 
Same thing with um, Sundance. Submit your scripts to Sundance to the workshops. Uh, still one of the finest in the world. If you're if you're European overseas, um, go to Equinox. Uh, they still are, are the finest uh, development uh, workshop nurturing writers uh, in Europe. You know, and again, it's what Frank Pearson told me. No, nobody has a job in our business until someone, a writer, has the courage to type the end. All those credits you see at the end that, that they want you to skip, mm-hmm. sit through them and count them and see how many hundreds and thousands of people have jobs because a writer typed the end. That's what they're not going to be able to realize. Jim Hart, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for sitting down and thank talking you. to the San Diego Screenwriters Studio. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Raul, you just got back from Nicaragua, right? Yes, I did. Unless I just hallucinated the last eight days. (laughs) Yes, I did. And today you're going to talk about the 1983 movie. Under Fire, which was a a Hollywood movie starring Gene Hackman, Nick Nolte, and Joanna Cassidy. And yeah, Nick Nolte and Gene Hackman are sort of the two guys fighting for the same girl. And they all go down to Nicaragua to cover the last days of the revolution. And they see, you know, a civil war between a ragtag, you know, guerrilla army, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, who are basically teenagers and 20-something kids, Mm -hmm. you know, who took on a U.S.-sponsored modern army and dictatorship. Like we said, there's this underlying current of war and war journalism. They start out in another country. But it shows them in their daily routine, right? This is their daily world. And again, it shows that these are not neophytes that go to cover the Sandinista war down there, the revolution. They've done it before. Yes, they have. Yeah, they are very experienced journalists, right? Yeah. But what's interesting is how they kind of, there's a twist Uh, Nick Nolte kind of fakes a photo, right? Yeah. See, what's happened is the fictitious Sandinista leader, this didn't really happen this way, has been killed. It compromises his his integrity and ethics. His journalism. Yes, but it's for a bigger cause, right? I mean, that's how they justify it. The idea in the movie is they start out neutral Mm -hmm. and they start to sympathize with the, the Sandinista rebels. Right. There's also a key scene that's based on fact. Uh, Gene Hackman, as I said, is in the movie, and he's uh, uh, one of the three journalists. He's a television reporter. And they get to a Somoza National Guard checkpoint, and uh, Gene Hackman walks up, hands in the air. He's going to talk to the the uh, National Guard officer there. And Nick Nolte and Joanna Cassidy are watching this through the camera lens from several hundred yards back Mm because Gene Hackman's gone forward. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they see one of the National Guard officers point a gun at Gene Hackman Uh and assassinate him. (gasps) He just dropped... Oh, that's a spoiler alert. Oops, did I ruin it? (laughs) Well... Uh, But this is based on a huge event. Oh, what happened? In the last months of the revolution in 1979, an American journalist named Bill Stewart 
oh. went down to Nicaragua, interviewed both sides, yes. spent a lot of time with the rebels, spent some time uh, with the National Guard, ro- right. roaming the country as a you know a member of the press right. with a press creden- credential and a cameraman and a translator, I guess. And Bill Stewart came to a National Guard uh, roadblock, yeah. and they assassinated him <gasps> right on uh, American TV. A cameraman was filming the whole thing just like Nick Nolte, yes. and they didn't know they had that footage because what Somoza originally said was that Sandinistas had assassinated Stewart. Oh. So what happened was the propaganda was that the Sandinistas had killed Stewart. Ooh. You know, these bloody Marxist rebels right. just killed a poor American journalist. Yeah. But his cameraman had the footage and the truth. Ooh. It was Somoza's troops that had killed him. Oh and it was just a straight out uh, anti-Geneva uh, Convention assassination. And Nick Nolte has the truth in his camera roll. Does he get out? Did they get out? Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) I'm going to spoil the whole thing. Spoil the whole thing. Nick Nolte runs through the eastern barrios of Managua, where the revolution basically took place. He runs through government checkpoints, and he finally gets the roll of film. I forget where, but to some official source so that it can be... safely released on tv and they're watching the film being released and joanna cassidy who also loves gene hackman although she left gene hackman for nick nolte uh is crying as they're watching their friend being murdered but it also reveals the truth of what happened and that's sort of the domino that tips everything and samosa's national guard falls Right at the end, you see the Sandinista rebels marching into Managua, which is really what happened. It's just a little, you know, simplified for a Hollywood plot versus historical actuality. Still a great movie, though, huh? Absolutely. So good stuff. All right, Raul Sandlin, our Nicaraguan expert. You are listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio with Gail Stewart and Raul Sandlin. We will be right back. Yes, we want to thank Jim Hart, our veteran screenwriter. Thank you so much for being on the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We're just about to close the studio door. Final thoughts, Roel, from you? Just wanted to add a couple more movies. If you like this sort of subgenre of Latin American social revolutions, El Norte, which is about the plight of Guatemalan refugees escaping civil war. Right, I saw that. That was excellent. Excellent movie. Excellent. Also, if you're, especially if you're a fan of Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone made an early movie called Salvador about the El Salvadorian revolution, which was very much like the Nicaraguan revolution. Yep. But he made Salvador when he was still kind of a young, struggling filmmaker like we all are. All right, two good movies. Movies, though. Well, now I'm going to just bounce to the opposite direction. That's right, Barbie. That, it, Barbie has become a revolutionary of sorts. It, it, I mean, I polarizing. Sh- I mean, well, I don't know about that, but definitely she has, you know, she's just knocked the socks off of Hollywood. Nobody's done it. 
Well, I know a few people that won't see Barbie. Tell me why. And it's for political why? reasons. Why? I'll just say the Trump right does not like Barbie. They're boycotting <laughs> it. And I got to tell you, I have mixed feelings about the movie. I went with my sister. She loved it. I don't know. I'm so strange and I'm so weird. I don't know if I'll ever fit into Hollywood for their blockbusters. <laughs> Quick question. Were, were you entertained? Did it grab you and take you through? The- there was some really good messaging going on in Barbie for women, for little girls, for, you know, because it's a it's a four quadrant film. I would call it a four quadrant film. Well, again, we're here looking at and, yeah. Perfect formula. Perfect Hollywood formula. But it didn't captivate you and keep your attention, keep you on the edge of your Thank seat. Thank God it wasn't three hours. It's not that I didn't like it, it but just, I was just kind of, with all the hoopla and all the headlines and yeah, yeah all the hype, I, it, I don't know. It was all right. That's all. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> 7.5 out of 10, maybe? Something. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriters Studio. I'm Gail Stewart. And I am Raul Sandlin. Back from Nicaragua. Thank you so much for listening to us today. San Diego's only social justice network, KNSJ 89.1 FM. Oh, thank you.